This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and here in, at Plato's Cave, the Triple R studios with me tonight, as always, is Emma Westwood. As always. As always. I'll have a day off eventually. But One yes, day yeah. we'll have a You day live off. here, don't you, Emma? Pretty much. <laughs> Emma and I live under the desk. We do. <laughs> and we have Flick Ford joining us again tonight and it's lovely to have you back oh, again, thank Flick. you. It's nice to be back. Um, before we get started um, on our show tonight, Flick, did you want to maybe say a couple of words about B.B. Anderson who recently passed away? Yeah, so Bibi Anderson is probably best known for her work with Ingar Bergman um, in Persona and Seventh Seal. Um, it's very sad to... She's been unable to speak, actually, for the last uh, nine... Uh, sorry, eight years after a stroke in 2009. Um, very, very amazing actress. I think we got away with one week last week without having... Someone passed away. A death away. roll. A death oh, roll. Yes. But, uh, I, yeah. It's been, yeah. Been I don't think we're going to get away with it uh, for many weeks this this year. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so on tonight's show. I we, shouldn't laugh. What was that? I chuckled at the end of it. Emma, Sorry. morbid. Morbid. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> on tonight's show, we're going to take a journey with Terry Gilliam and his film that has been 25 plus years in the making, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And we are also going to look at acclaimed Berlin director uh, Christian Petzold's latest offering, Transit. But first, let's talk about someone who is not a messiah, but a very (laughs) naughty boy, (laughs) Brian Cohen, in none other than Monty Python's The Life of Brian. So in case you've been living under a rock and, you know, you've never heard of this film, uh, the life, Monty Python's The Life of Brian was extremely controversial upon its release and it was banned in several countries. Um, we are celebrating now Brian's 40th birthday. It's, I know. Isn't that incredible? I was, I was raised on this film. Yes, yeah, so was I. Like I mm. just watched it with my father over and over. It's um, set in uh, 33 AD Judea where exasperated Romans are trying to impose some order. It's a time of chaos and change with no shortage of messiahs and followers willing to believe in them. So at its centre is Brian Cohen, a reluctant would-be messiah who rises to prominence as a result of a series of absurd circumstances, providing ample opportunity for the entire Monty Python ensemble, including Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Uh, Terry Jones and Michael Palin to shine in multiple roles as they question everyone and everything from um, (laughs) ex-lepers to Pontius Pilate, the art of haggling, to revolutionaries, crazy prophets, religious fanaticism, Roman centurions and, of course, crucifixion. Um, Emma, <laughs> what can we say about the life of Brian? It just still makes me giggle. I, I've been giggling from the start of this show to, you know, now and probably till the end because of um, the life of Brian. I giggled through poor B.B. Anderson's death. 
<laughs> because of the life of Brian. Um, it's something like you, Sally, I've been brought up on it. So it's really hard for me to be totally objective. I've tried to. I've tried to sit back a bit. and uh, I haven't watched it for quite a while, but it was something that um, uh, someone who was boarding with us at one stage with my family would watch, uh, could quote back to front. And it was a video, a VHS that we actually had in the house in the early days of VHS. So there weren't many around that and Flying High. So they were two films. I think we grew up in the same house, Emma. I did. I thought I recognised <laughs> yeah, you I before. We did. Yeah. So, yeah, it is very hard to extricate yourself, uh, especially looking at it uh, and, you know, in, in retrospect, I find out how dif- uh, how controversial this, this film was. At the time, it didn't seem particularly controversial to me. It was just very funny. Um, and then to take it out of that controversy, and then and this was through religious conservatism at that time, uh, which was um, Mary Whitehouse, our favourite. Good, good old Mary Whitehouse, <laughs> our friend. Oh, I'm sure she had good sensible undies on our Mary Whitehouse. I don't know. I think maybe she had a sexy G-string on under there. I hope she did. <laughs> I hope. Anyway, she's passed on. Uh, and uh, so I'll laugh about that. No, I won't. Um, and, uh, yes, it was through, you know, the, the religious conservatism was the, the you know, the, um, uh, the, the response basically to this film. Now it could, you know, you, you, you kind of look at it and go, what is the other response, the political incorrectness of this film, uh, supposedly? But in watching it again, I felt it really, uh, I felt it was really insightful and prophetic I must say and listening to some of the language I was quite surprised. Yeah I found that as well that the same I I definitely was raised on this movie and it has been uh, quite a while since I've watched this and um, was expecting that kind of thing where it's like oh you know perhaps it's not going to (laughs) come off as well as it once did but I, I totally agree with you I think that Anything in this that could be deemed as possibly offensive is quite tender, um, is handled quite well. Um, And, yeah, I don't think there's anything to be really concerned about. I think that there, there could be a, a reaction, a knee-jerk reaction straight away when people look at certain certain things are presented on the screen, but it's interesting. But I it is that. It's a knee-jerk reaction and that's it's it. It's a knee-jerk. And then when you actually listen to you, you, you listen to it, you look at it in its context, I mean, there's some things that are, are, politic, are like socially sensitive now, probably the transgender scene for mm-hmm. one thing, but the characters are actually really sweet when that's it comes down that to was it. The one scene that really stood out to me yeah. was the sweetness with how that was handled. Yeah. When something looking at transgender issues in a comedy that was made in the 1970s mm-hmm. was God, you know, just yeah, a bit for laughs. But yeah, exactly. But it was something that I, I do feel watching this was dealt with quite gently. And also the fact that, you know, it's it's about, it's, it's all being so self-deprecating. I, yep. I love what I felt really um, was so, so poignant now was this idea of the splintered left 
which is something that sort of always has concerned me because the left seemed to always fight in splinters against each other and this was really embodied through the People's Front of Judea and the Judean <laughs> People's the Front. Those yeah. wankers, yeah. you know, and it's like you're all on the same side, guys. <laughs> yeah. Stop that's, it. That's actually what I, that's what I loved so much. Like I, I did grow up on this film as well and it's fantastic how relevant it still is in a lot of ways it's incredible it's like 40 years on that's really quite an incredible feat especially in comedy that can be so topical and then for it still to have this longevity and and real love and affection like mm-hmm. it's kind of it's quite an amazing film and I'm not sure how much more I could add to that but I I just made me really think about the role of comedy in political commentary and the way in which like a lot of the we actually teach it <clears throat> pardon me as part of our censorship course and talking through some of the um, responses from religious factions, which kind of treat this comedy as something to be very scared of or something that is always going to be crass or that is going to push the boundaries. It's kind of like, yeah, that's sort of what it's meant to do. I I, I watched today, I watched this really interesting... um, It was a debate from 1979 when the film was released. It was with Michael Palin and John Cleese and uh, two religious figures from the UK who I'm I'm not too sure who they were. It was on the... Who cares? (laughs) Who cares? But um, so it was obviously surrounding the release of The Life of Brian and the incredible controversy that this created that, you, like, yeah, you just kind of scratch your head out and think is absurd now when, you know, Michael Palin and John Cleese both trying, you know, defending the film saying, you know, this isn't actually Jesus Christ, this is his parallel, <laughs> but, you know, then there's yeah. these two religious figures saying, but you're mocking, you know, the very most important thing in, you know, Christianity, which is crucifixion. And yeah, it was – it's – I watched it on YouTube today. It's worth looking up. It was, yeah, yeah just this debate between them. Those, very, very enlightening. And don't you think that those protests, and the same with, like, when films are, are said to be too violent or too shocking, it's, like, actually adds to the adds to the film. It's, like, the best review you could get. Is oh, like, my God. I am one of those people plasmas. and I have been since I started watching cinema that if someone says, don't watch that, I'm like, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all over yeah. this. <laughs> So they really couldn't have asked for yeah. for more. I think so too. <laughs> I think that the the what was presented so well through this is the following of false prophets as well mm-hmm. that whole when especially that sequence when brian is just trying to run away from people and they're like this is his shoe he's god you know and <laughs> and the, the juniper bush or whatever and the poor guy that he's stepped on his foot and he's had the vow of silence for 18 years <laughs> damn 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 you know um it's it really rings true also with our you know, obsession with celebrity in this day and age. It's particularly interesting with social media and that kind of, I think, jumping on bandwagon. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think they are Jesus, to be totally honest. (laughs) (laughs) Look at this. Or at least Nostradamus. Monty Python have predicted Mm. a whole lot of stuff that is just happening now, you know. Mm. And to place it, I mean, always their humour, it works so well to place um, you know, something biblical and Arabic in a British sensibility because it's always funny to put, you know, the British politeness on there, you know, like <laughs> with Michael Palin's, like, oh, crucifixion, oh, no, no freedom. Oh, oh, 
oh, jolly good. Okay, that ro- <laughs> no, I was just only joking. I'm just joking. You know <laughs> yeah. that that sort of thing. It it just plays out so well. I do love though that if you look at IMDb for this film, and you you scroll down to languages, it says that it's in English and Latin. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> It was really interesting as well when I was, like I said, I was looking at this thing today where they were talking about the funding for the film and how Holy Grail they had made just prior to this and their tensions between the whole Monty Python's crew were really not good. They weren't at a good point and this film sort of brought them back together and EMI had picked them up to do Life of Brian, read through the script and dropped it. Oh, really? Yeah. So they didn't think the film was going to be made, which is interesting. It leads quite a lot into our next film that we'll be talking about. They didn't think Life of Brian was going to be made because they didn't have any money for it. And then it I think it turned out that Eric Idle yeah. um, was good friends with George Harrison and George Harrison said, I'll give you the money. I just yeah, want to see the George film. George Harrison is behind. Isn't that amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah. to so think that? So he sort of fronted the majority of the money for it the actually, Life of Brian. It, you know, I feel when I watch this, it's, uh, you know, I feel a bit of a George Harrison vibe, like, here comes the sun. Yeah. You know, it, it sort of suits it. But even for me, you know, being brought up on this, I, I, this film, I always assumed that Always Look on the Bright Side of Life was a cover I never realised that it was actually originated from this film Mm. and it's telling how, you know, uh, how prevalent the film has been and how influential that this song, it's just become... I don't know. I think it's been played at so many funerals, and and Eric. I did see Eric Idle actually speaking once, and he said, "I have no choice. That is going to be my funeral song. I know that is going to be <laughs> yeah, played well, at my funeral." What can you do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, like I said, it is the life of Brian's fortieth anniversary, and it's screening at selected cinemas starting on Thursday. So it's screening at Cinema Nova on Thursday, April eighteenth. Um, and also at Selected Palace Cinemas. So if you just have a little Google, you'll see which ones are screening it. And it is um, also screening at the Thornbury Picture House on April 18th, Thursday, and it is screening at the Astor Theatre on Friday, April 19th. Can I just say something, Sally? Yes. Because I think this is interesting. This is part of – this is sort of event cinema. This is part of a worldwide event. Yes, There's actually, yes. So it's not just Australia. Yeah, this is happening all over the world. Exactly. Yeah. So I think this is quite marvellous, really. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it is. I think the website's wewantbrian.org or something mm-hmm. like that if people want to look it up. So, yeah, there's lots of screenings happening around town. In and standard definition and, and mono, mono sound. <laughs> I saw that standard <laughs> definition and mono sound. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. April Amnesty just happening right now at Triple R. So if you missed the chance to subscribe during our Radiothon, now is the perfect time. Um, Subscription to Triple R means a great deal to us. It means the world to us. It keeps us going. Uh, It's, you know, we all are volunteers here, so it's really important that, you know, we have your subscriptions. So if you subscribe during the month of April, you can go into the draw to win a whole heap of great prizes such as emma well we have to say again a melbourne international film festival mini pass that's the one we all want yeah because that's very much um well that's film 
That's what we're doing mm-hmm. here, guys. Film. Or you can get a um, a subscription to crikey.com.au and get very angry about politics. That's what you can do. Or you can sit around an Andrew Gibbs handmade mid-century inspired round four-seater dining table that's made for conversation. But wait, there's more. There's more. You can talk about films there or you can go to the zoo and talk about films and with a family pass to Melbourne Zoo, Hillsville Sanctuary or the Werribee Open Range Zoo. Zoos everywhere. Just zoos. You're a fantastic <laughs> salesperson. <laughs> I'm so, getting a subscription now. Exactly. Like, right, so I've already got one. I'm going to double <laughs> <Same>. up. <laughs> so if you are interested in subscribing during April Amnesty, visit our website at triple R, that's rrr.org.au. Um, so the next film we're going to look at this evening is The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. So directed by Monty Python's own Terry Gilliam, but he's also an acclaimed director in his own right. Um, Gilliam has given us masterpieces such as Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Brazil. Uh, The man who killed Donkey already has faced hurdle after hurdle and Gilliam has spent 25 years trying to get the story off the ground and he has finally succeeded. So the film focuses on Toby, a cynical advertising director who finds himself trapped in the outrageous delusions of an old Spanish shoemaker who believes himself to be Don Quixote. In the course of their comic and increasingly surreal adventures, Toby is forced to confront the tragic repercussions of a film that he made in his idealistic youth. Um, It stars Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. Um, So I think... The Man Who Killed Don Quixote screened at MIF last year. It's currently on at Nova. Um, I didn't see it at MIF. I saw it really recently on the weekend. And I have to say, just bluntly, I think it's one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> That's a really big call, Sally. I know. Everything about this film just fell flat for me. Like, everything. The comedy was... it. I didn't laugh once. Um, the score I felt was awful. Um, it was irritating. Just the whole package I found to be really, really bad. And I'm sure that this film has had such an interesting journey. There's a documentary made about it, which, what's it called again, Emma? Lost in La Mancha. Lost in La which Mancha. Which is excellent. Yeah, yeah, which I was hoping to have watched before tonight. And not not specifically about this production. It was about the... The um, earlier one. Yeah, year 2000, I think. This mm. film came out in about... Lost in La Mancha came out in about 2002 or 2003. But um, 2002, I think. But, um, yeah, so uh, it wasn't about... It featured other actors. It featured... So Johnny Depp Johnny was in Depp. The, So I can, I can see yeah. the crossover with Adam Driver, Johnny Depp. I, I, you know, I can see that... Jonathan Price and jo- Jean Rochefort was... Oh, the, really? Yeah, but okay. he's passed away since then and mm-hmm. there was a lot of problems originally with Sean Rochefort because um, he was very ill when they were making the film and couldn't ride the horse yep. basically and had worked on the, the amazing thing is he's a French actor and a very celebrated mm. French actor who learnt English for this film and he never got to see it actually made. I mean, it's, it's probably incredible. not such a bad thing, really. <laughs> but it may way. have been. This is the weird thing, Sally. <laughs> what what you said about it's it. Brutal. I didn't. <laughs> Sorry. Mm, yeah, we'll get to you. <laughs> but I, I'm 
I'm similar to Sally. I really didn't enjoy the experience of watching this. It had, it felt like, um, and I know films aren't necessarily shot in a linear fashion, but it felt like it just jumped out of the gates and come on, I'm going to make this goddamn film. I don't care. Yes, it's like I have this opportunity (laughs) right now and I've been trying so hard for so long and I'm just going to do it. Exactly. And it just felt like an absolute hot mess. It it was a hot Mm. mess. It had a feel of desperation. It didn't have any light and shade in it. It actually did get better towards the end, but it had lost me by then. I wasn't quite... And I miss big chunks of it. I, I just vagued out. Yeah, it was difficult. I like the Russian vodka dude that they had the party at there were a few things that you know were were nice but there was no light and shade it it just um i found it really hard to get into the narrative because there was no light and shade i found nothing redeeming about this but the one thing that i i kind of went (laughs) tell us what you really think sally (laughs) i thought the the gypsy was good looking that was about it I can't believe it's falling on my shoulders to defend this film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, I just want to. I feel like someone should say something positive about it. Look, Adam Driver is really good as Toby. He he he, he, he yeah, like he's perfectly. He's good. Yeah, it's yeah. Like a very very much. I don't know, a very self-reflexive film. The whole he's got this fantastic line halfway through it, where he's like, "Who the fuck wrote this? Wrote this ending?" And it's kind of fantastic, where it's just like he's also stuck in this film. And I think this awareness, it's sixteen years. Plus, in, and, and Terry in the Gilliam did work in advertising before yeah. he went into cinema. Yeah. So there this, is, yeah, and it's got the title of the most cursed film in cinema history. Like it's it's really working with this context, and so I don't think it's great. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I did watch it when I was a little bit hungover and just sort of let it wash over me. But I don't know. I think his Adam Driver's great in it. Um, Jonathan Price is fantastic. Like it's their banter between them was so enjoyable and. Admittedly, like, the whole trajectory of him being this, like, super, like, wanky film bro, that's Adam Driver's character, Toby, to sort of having this kind of love-hate relationship with this old man who he's really affected his mental health in quite significant ways. I don't know. There was a tenderness there that I got into. I... I kind of just went... I kind of just sank into the crazy and I enjoyed it and... There's some beautiful, beautiful shots and I I think that you can really see um, Gilliam's mark on there using these really unusual angles and some ultra-wide angle lenses and he's kind of famous for for that work in like Tideland. Tideland's one of my favourite films. Yeah, Tideland's beautiful. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that came out in 2005. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, of course. Brazil, 1985. Like, these are... Brazil's my absolute yeah, favourite, yeah, yeah. though. There's like, so you when you have a director of that status, of course, you know, nowhere near, probably his worst film, sure. I haven't seen Zero Theorem, though, and the trailer for that looks shocking. So I'm, I, maybe, there's, maybe there's a <laughs> You've seen The Brothers Grimm? There was some... I, I, I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard sort yeah, of Yeah, I haven't so, seen so. it either, actually. So, so, so there might be a few others. We're, yeah. We're, yeah. So it's difficult to make, you know, yeah. Maybe don't go watch it if you're a massive fan, but it's kind of like and it, there's some interest, interesting angles, there's some interesting characters, and I, th- I don't know. I you say don't go it. watch it if you're a massive fan. Well, I, I think, think maybe so a massive be. fan might be <laughs> might be the one. It might be the we one. The only one. Tw- maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I do like I do like his work though. I do like Terry Gilliam's yeah. work. You know. I, yeah. I mean, there's it's there's I can't. I, I'm trying. I'm not trying to defend it too much because I really I don't want to have my name associated to this film. But <laughs> you're gonna be on the poster for it. Yeah. <laughs> Clifford's <laughs> film of the year. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> 
but there, there, there's something to it. And I, I, there are moments, there are enough enjoyable moments in it that I was like, oh, they actually captured that really well. And I got into some of the, and some of the action on screen, I was like, that's pretty cool. It was really well choreographed and really well shot. So that would be one nice thing to say about it. <laughs> it's, I, I, I found it more interesting as I probably would feel more like uh, exactly like Sally, except I enjoyed the context of how it had come together. Yeah, I think and I, I want to go home tonight and watch this documentary. Yeah, about, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm. The documentary is fascinating, but it, it doesn't, it, it particularly looks at that production of it because that was um, uh, the, the actual, well, what became the documentary was actually a making of um production that was being filmed at the same time you know how people how productions will do that they'll have the making of crew there at the same time but instead because this film never got made the lost in la mancha it ended up becoming the film the documentary became the film there was nothing else which was probably a a bonus for the guys who who made it who's this keith fulton and louis peppy who haven't done much lately but they did an amazing film that people should check out called brothers of the head that came out in 2005 i think it was and 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 miff showed it it was actually there and it's a mockumentary on um siamese twins who become punk stars Sounds fantastic. It is absolutely (laughs) fantastic. And it goes from having edges of like bits of uh, spinal tap in it to becoming quite sensitive and and quite sad Mm. towards the end. But I highly recommend you see that. Not the man that killed Tom Quixote, <laughs> but but this in seeing in what it became in the end, I think this is an example of something being overwritten, overwritten, and and, and it, it needs to. It's it just plays out because Gillian had been with it so long. I think you can't extract the meta detailing out of it yeah and and you can see obviously it has been rewritten a lot of times like a lot well it was meant to be a time traveling film at one stage so it went from the 17th century to being a film where the you know this character this toby character i I think time travels to the 20th century um and then it's gone into this just melding of the two so overcooked too late such a shame, but mm. oh well. The, the 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 story of the production is much more interesting. Yeah. Well, um, if you are so inclined, the man <laughs> who killed Don Quixote is currently screening at Cinema Nova. Three triple R. So, Transit is the story of uh, George, who is a scrappy German refugee. He um, escapes the advancing German troops by reaching the French port of Marseille. With him, he carries documents, a manuscript, letters, and a visa assurance from the Mexican embassy belonging to an author who has committed suicide. George assumes the author's identity and enters into the limbo-like existence of a man in flight forced to mark time while he waits for his visa to be approved and for safe passage by ship to Mexico. Um, so, Flick, did you want to kick this one off? Yeah, well, it is my favourite film of last year. So, Did you see this last year? Big. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Big, okay. big, yeah. that's big. Yeah. All right. Well, in close... In, uh, close competition with Phantom Thread, but I, I just think there's something about this film that I um, 
it just affected me on a really powerful level. So this this these characters that are caught sort of in this really quite a sad liminal space, they're kind of in limbo. And I, I think that what, you know, Christian Beltzot describes this as his, the last chapter of his trilogy of um, films that he's titled Love in Times of Oppressive Systems, which I feel like, you know, it's in good. Netflix is like, you like these sorts of films. Mine would be Love in Times of Oppressive Systems. <laughs> Recommended for you, Love in like, Times of Oppressive like Systems. Of yeah. <laughs> so I feel very seen by this film. But uh, no, it, it, it is really powerful. I think that I'm really fascinated by the way in which it explores explores the psyche of this experience it's not just about um, the refugee experience or this this sort of sense of of tension and limbo and and trauma of um, being displaced but it actually really thinks about what that lived experience is and it, it engages with it and reflects an, on upon that tension in this really fascinating way and I really love how it ties that to these narratives of, of displacement and loss. And I think it's a it's just a masterful film. I it's also really, really sexy. Like Paula Beer and Franz uh, Rogalski, who play the two leads, they've just got such great on screen chemistry. They do, don't They're they? They're yeah. two of the most beautiful people to have ever graced the screen, but in really interesting ways. Like they both have these fascinating faces and both communicate so much without words that I was really taken back by their performances. And I really love Petzold's, um the way in which he presents these romantic, oh, I know, romantic maybe is the wrong word, but I suppose narratives of desire would be better better phrasing in um, his earlier films like Barbara, 20, which came out in 2012, and Phoenix, which is, again, another one of my faves, um, which stars Nina Hoss, who also starred in Barbara. But he he focuses in on on the way in which these characters, there's this real tension and sadness to these narratives of desire where I just think it adds so much to the tension between them and like, will they, won't they? But also just that sense of despair in these times, like it's, it's dark and it's bleak and these people are, are sort of drawn together by that. And also, yeah, it's, I don't know. I got so into it. That, <laughs> like the desire and mm. sexuality and the need for tenderness that came through in this film, I found to be really interesting. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to give any of the film away, but I had not seen that sort of portrayed ever in cinema the way that I did in this film, that kind of just the need of human affection and I guess the acceptance of it for what it is. Mm. I found very, very interesting. Mm. And have we have we mentioned that it's um, uh, a period film in modern day dress? No, we haven't. Mm. Because that's that's something about this film that I thought was really, really intriguing. I Is found that, that what confusing. I'm, am I meant to say that? No, yeah, because sure, I go was, for it. Okay, because yeah. uh, I then I read stuff because I yeah it confused me. Yeah, it I, did confuse me. I first. When it started, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure what my placement is, where I'm meant to be watching this film as a viewer. How, mm. uh, how wonder, what, uh, yeah. I'll start that <laughs> sentence again. <Yeah. laughs> I was about to say what wonderful phrasing there because your placement is is also being called into question much like yeah. that, that sense of, of displacing you mm-hmm. much like the characters. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And it that's it. And I, I, I was like discombobulated. I didn't know where I, mm. I was meant to I be. Didn't, I didn't mm. know where I was either. I think actually it helps to know that to go into this film I think you get more from that from it knowing that because there's a lot of um, interesting things that are called up by looking seeing characters as they are today but 
putting it through the experiences of an occupied France in World War Two, for really? example. See, I found that it didn't really take anything away from my viewing of this film. What was the film that we looked at last year? And I know, Emma, both you and I didn't have any prior knowledge of it and we were both saying that it not having that prior knowledge made the film not work oh, at all. God, what was it called? asking me to think... I love that we're doing this on air as well. I know. Anyway, <laughs> Maybe I'll get back to you. Maybe it'll come to you. you. But um, I found watching this the yeah. the need for prior knowledge didn't didn't make a difference to me. It 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 did a little for me. I think that looking back over it, I, I saw a lot more um, by knowing knowing that knowing what it was doing because it was interesting with Flick saying it's um, bleak and everything because. I actually think I watched it on a completely different level. Yes, thematically it might be bleak, but this film is actually visually really, really sunny and it's almost yeah, like yeah. it's it's so that idea of the modern versus, you know, this kind of temporal shift was really interesting for me because there it it almost seemed like all the white people there were on holiday, but they weren't. You heard things about, oh, the invading forces are coming in or these towns being taken or whatever. Yet it was kind of like they could have been on holiday. And then you had the – but then you also had Arabic people there. So it was kind of playing off where are we? Is this now? Is this how different people – in, yeah, I thought I thought it was that that was really really interesting. I also the way it started and the way it ended felt like it could be almost a Hitchcock film, um, and I expected it to go down a certain way that it didn't. So it didn't. Um, I felt it fell a bit lackluster, to be totally honest, in the in the middle, and then it came back again at the end. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it did. It, it kind of lost me, and then um, it came back quite powerfully at the end. Powerful start, powerful end, but then had a bit of a uh, a nothingness in oh, the centre for I me. I feel like yeah. I feel like it was just really taut, and and I feel like especially with his his work in Phoenix, it really reminded me. Um, stylistically of that previous film because of this all of this being communicated through exchanges and I, and when you're saying before this like sunniness to it I mean it is set in Maasai and there's this sense of it being you know it is a lovely coastal holiday town but it, that sense of it being like precisely because of that setting underscored by this really desperate situation. I kind yeah, of loved I th- that I think tension. that was really clever because you really – I kind of got that tension more coming out through the dialogue, though, than anything I saw, but I like that. I like yeah. that in itself. I, I really yeah. I really enjoyed that about this film as well, how there – you mentioned, like, all these exchanges with characters and it, it is this constant – you know, we see the main character catching eyes of different characters who sort of come in and out of his time spent in this town and it is through tension in dialogue that everything comes out in this film and I love the way that these characters float in and out where it's that kind of thing where if you go down to the same shops regularly that you kind of see a familiar face but are you going to have some kind of interaction (laughs) with them Um, I I like that about this film I liked how it made me uncomfortable like that I'm not sure my interactions at IGA have this same (laughs) no I don't think so either unfortunately (laughs) but but it does um, nothing nothing really super threatening happens in Maasai itself it's sort of like uh, and this idea and I think they played on that a lot in the the 
the idea of it being a port and mm. the the place that ports played. In fact, there was a really nice line that was said where ports are here for stories to be told, which I thought was really lovely, which is about that, you know, the movement of people. And there was a lot of hopping on and off ships here, which plays a, a, a very important part in the narrative as it all comes together. Um, and this idea of movement, the the you know, trans population movement um, in times of crises, um, which plays out so strongly here because we've got in Europe, I think especially especially in Europe, and Chris, Christian Petzold is a German filmmaker as well, so we can't um, we we can't downplay the importance that of the the migration in in Germany in uh, right across Europe and how that plays out in Germany at the moment, how important that is on this film. Um, but the fact that it it actually culminates in the song a modern sort of modern day song it's not that modern now road to to nowhere that we we just played which um mm. i did think was a really really nice touch at the end the way that yeah. that came yeah. in and also how wonderful when we're saying before about selecting this location that's so sunny and beautiful and real holiday feel i mean talking heads track has that exact same feel to it and it does the, the lyrics themselves are, are <coughs> actually yes. describing the the situation that the characters are in and he didn't do i think in saying modern dress it's really when you say that uh, i think it, you know it could conjure thoughts in someone of them him going really over the top in modern dress but it wasn't and like in some stages there you know she'll have a a dress on that could be sort of 1940s 1950s style it wasn't about hamming up the modern dress it was but just there were about things like modern cars and you know in there the were, background but did you see yeah. any mobile phones i can't no. i didn't see any mobile no, there phones. were no mobile phones but there definitely were cctv yes, there was cctv yes. um a few things like that but it, it's it wasn't played out as a gimmick like yeah i think do you know a, what i mean that was a real the important subtlety thing. to it and i yeah. think that that actually is a beautiful way of him being able to say how how that links up to current day politics i think it may not have been his intention but it definitely made me think about it in a current context i think it was really pronounced that was his intention Mm, that's what i'm thinking yeah yeah it felt really pronounced to me that this Mm. was really a comment on what's going on in europe at the moment versus what went on in europe 50 odd years ago and how it's not really that different Mm. and how we were all meant to learn from that time and yeah we just yeah, haven't moved on. So. We're on a road to nowhere, guys. <laughs> also, I, Come on inside. I, do, I do love that I've been following the work of Franz Ragowski, who's the lead actor, very closely. And you can see him also in Sebastian Schipper's film Victoria and uh, Michael Haneke's Happy End. And it's just, like, wonderful to just look at his versatility as an actor. It's uh-huh. just, like, those three roles are so, so different. That's right. <laughs> now that you picked that out, I forgot that he yeah. was in Happy End, but you're right. The yeah. karaoke scene, man. Yes. Yeah, seminal. How we- Interesting. But um, also another thing I realised about today's show is that uh, all three films are all about like mistaken or misplaced identity. We've got these. That's true, they yeah. are. So I, I was kind of writing my we, notes we, up we, and I was like, wait a minute. We thought of that theme already. <laughs> no, didn't kind of, kind of carries on from last week with Vertigo, kind of. A little bit. Or Doppelgangers yeah. more. But We're very know. clever. Yeah, We are clever. We did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so Transit is currently screening at Acme as part of their Christian Petzold season. So that also includes the state I am in, Barbara and Phoenix. 
You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Emma Westwood, Flick Ford and myself, Sally Christie. On tonight's show, we discussed Monty Python's Life of Brian, which we just heard. Brian song part two, which is the, <laughs> the credit sequence. And I was it? just saying um, that the woman that did the vocals on that was only 16 at the time and what a powerful voice, really incredible stuff. So if you are interested in seeing Life of Brian, it is playing at selected cinemas across Melbourne from Thursday. So if you go to wewantbrian.com, it will show you where your nearest screening is. We also looked at Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is screening at Cinema Nova. And finally, we talked about Transit, which is screening at Acme as part of their Christian uh, Pets Old season. So in the cave next week, we will be discussing Chandong Lee's latest Burning, which I'm very excited for. I'm really excited for all of the films next week. We're also looking at Three Faces. Jafar Panahi. Uh-huh. And our retro selection is the incredible, prolific... Jesus or Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos <laughs> from 1971. <laughs> so if you want to have a look at any of the um, films that we've talked about this evening or any of the songs that we've played or websites we've mentioned, if you go to Plato's Cave on triplerr.org.au, all the info's there. You can subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. So a big thank you to Faith Everard for editing our podcast, Carl Chapman for panelling, and Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.